One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash sacred text. 19 years later, autumn seemed to arrive suddenly that year. The morning of the 1st of September was crisp and golden as an apple. And as the little family bobbed across the rumbling road toward the great sooty station, the fumes of car exhausts and the breath of pedestrians sparkled like cobwebs. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tekile. And we've finished Harry Potter <laughs> and Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. I have so many feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. Like, as I picked it up to read, I was really feeling it, Vanessa. We've been doing this on the podcast for five years and really for six years because we had the class for a year before that. I don't know. I felt like we had arrived at our own front door, like back on this huge journey around the books, right back where we started. And to like pretend we could have imagined <laughs> about where it would have ended up. I know I've told this story before, but you and I were sitting inside in coats in a room that didn't have electricity because it was the winter that like it never stopped snowing. And you turned to me and said, what if we treat Harry Potter as sacred? And I was like, that is not a terrible idea. But like it was just this like silly freezing cold moment. And I really think that one of the things that sustained this whole project was just the joy we've always found in the practice of reading together. The themes we choose every week have just been an excuse to like get to love each other more. Yeah, I think when I think about the things that sustained us, and I know you feel the same way, but like one is the community, right? Is mm. having the voicemails every week that often make us tear up hearing from people about 
what the podcast means from them. People blowing our minds with their like better reads on the text Ugh. than we could ever have. Like this community has just come to mean so much to us. I remember at the beginning, people would use the word community and we would balk at it. We'd be like, no, yes. this is a network of listeners. This is not a community. We don't know each other well enough. Like no one is going to bring you soup if you're sick. It's not a community. And now it legitimately is. It really, really is. In fact, my story today is very much about our community because, of course, every book at the very end, we read the last chapter through the theme of love. So we're doing that today. And we will have plenty of time. We've got another four episodes coming. We're going to talk about book seven. We're going to talk about the whole series. We've got an outpost. But for now, let's just focus in on the epilogue. Vanessa, I want to take you back to our very first live show. Aww. I know. You know, we were so nervous about it. At least I was. Because we had launched the podcast and been very lucky to be featured on the homepage of iTunes. So we had all of these new listeners, but we had no idea who they were. And so we made the decision, let's do a live show. And so we booked out the kind of the lower level, like the basement of a small music club venue in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we'd gone there to set up and there was a stage and there was like an open space. Lots of chairs were being put out. And I remember I wore my like fancy turquoise paisley shirt, which is my like, wow, shirt. <laughs> because I was I was just very nervous about it. And I remember I went to the front door as people started to arrive to like welcome everyone individually, because of course I wanted to make people feel welcome, but also I wanted to manage my own anxiety and distract myself by talking to lots of people. And I remember you and I backstage were just kind of, we didn't even talk that much. We were mostly just like looking at each other of like, well, this is happening. And we walked out on stage and then we looked at each other again. And it was so magical because in the front row, Sean, my now husband and Peter, your partner, there were our favorite mentors and teachers from Divinity School. There were our classmates. And then there were hundreds of strangers who were just so thrilled, not only to see us, but to see each other. And at one point during the show, we were doing a Lectio Divina and everyone was like silently reading the text really intentionally. And then they turned to the person next to them and they were talking and you could see the openness and the intentionality and the warmth. And we just looked at each other and we're like, we did this. Like Ariana, you and I like made this happen. And I just felt so gooey and warm and just full of love in that moment that if I need to make a Patronus in my life, like that's one of the memories I go to. And I, I wanted to think about that scene, especially because I think one of the reasons the love felt so multi-layered is because there were different types of love in that room. You know, in ancient Greece, the kind of philosophers would differentiate different types of love. Eros as a romantic love, which of course both of us had with our partners there. Agape as this kind of communal, loving sensibility, nearly something that's a little more abstract, which was definitely there just in all of these people coming together. But then also philos, which is really about a relationship of being a beloved in, in a friendship, this sense of not just community in the abstract, but a, a specific relationship of friendship, of a belovedness, 
of affection. And I feel like that's always been true for us, but it was also suddenly true in the room as people turned to each other in those pairs talking with one another. And like, we know that people met there and like became roommates, for example, like that, that was real. And so when you said before about like, we were always nervous about calling our listeners a community, I think we were right to, because I think that word can be overused. But now when we see people fundraising for Black Lives Matter and racists on immigration justice, when people are, you know, getting together in local groups week in, week out, talking about their lives, talking about the text, the way that people engage with each other online, pretty much nearly always, uh, <laughs> and the incredible voicemails that we get to listen to, and the way in which all of that philos is mobilized in the way that, for example, we saw the mutual aid network set up at the beginning of COVID. I feel those different dimensionalities of love so deeply in our community. And for us, like it's it's like a wonderful self-fulfilling circle of goodness, of love. One of my all-time favorite photographs ever, I will put it up on Instagram, is of the first few rows of people watching us. And it is Stephanie Paulsell, Matt Potts, our friend Lauren Taylor. It's like basically all people who've been on the podcast at this point. <laughs> but it's just like every teacher, Mike Motia, who was my thesis advisor and believed in this project like really before I did and introduced us to Ariana. And yeah. all of them, I swear to you, have their heads tilted and are smiling in this like wow way yeah. and the other thing i remember is when we said we were going to do lectio divina people cheered <laughs> and i said and stephanie's to stephanie face. <laughs> i was like stephanie look what you did <laughs> like people are cheering for lectio divina because of you like it's just such a wild thing like, my mom was in the back selling merch That's with julia right. yeah it was just really it was like a wedding it was. It was just it was. so beautiful. And the last thing that I want to say is that our local group all came together. The yeah. very first local group that believed in this idea really before it was a thing, they were all sitting off to stage right <laughs> all together and were just like beaming at us. Yeah, they helped us to discover what this really was. Totally. I mean, that's that's what's so beautiful about it, I think, is that that kind of loving community helped create what the project became, what the podcast became. And I, I want to stress, I'm not telling that story in a self-referential way of like, oh, aren't we great? But really to testify, I say, to the love that we have experienced and have been part of in this project. And I think, you know, as we read this epilogue, it has such a strong focus on these loving relationships, romantic partnerships, parents and children. We see some friendships, right? Teddy being included in the family table, as it were. Like there's so much of those different kinds of love present in this chapter. And it, it it just made me see that connection. Well, Vanessa, let's remind everyone what happens in these, I don't want to say action-packed, but love-packed six pages. <laughs> Will you go first in our 30-second recap? Happily. Three, two, one, go. So they, um, the Potter family arrives. They have three kids. The little one is like, oh, I want to go just like Ginny used to. And the middle one is scared because he's going to, I now don't know names. The James, I guess, is scared because he's like, what if I get sorted? The other one gets yeah. scared because he's like, what if I get sorted in the Slytherin? And Harry and Lily are like, Harry and Ginny are like, oh, that's not going to happen. And then the Weasleys are there and their kid and Teddy is there and Draco is there and everyone is there and they board the train. 
I did so well. <laughs> I feel you're really invested in this new generation of characters. I am, but like they're all <laughs> Albus Severus, James Lilly. Like they all mean different things to me. And I've only had one chapter to get used to this like new arrangement of names. And so right. I'm sorry that it's taking me time to get used to it. Rose is the young Weasley Granger child. That I know. Very good. Very good. I feel like we could have used an Albus II or like Albie Jr. I don't know. It's like cute. Everyone's there. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. On your mark. Get set. Go. There's lots of connections to the past because Ron spies Draco and is like, oh, look, there he is. Um, and Draco didn't marry Pansy Parkinson. So that worked out for the best for both of them, probably. Um, and they're at the station. And so like people are going through the wall as they usually would. Um, and people are getting on the train and little Albus is like, oh, I don't want to be in Slytherin. And Harry's like, oh, you don't have to be. But if you if you are, that's fine, because brave people like Severus were. And if you're not, you can just ask. And Harry's like, oh, I've never told my children this before because he doesn't talk about the past. A lot is implied in this epilogue. Indeed. So, Casper, like, we know several people who are like, the epilogue doesn't even count because I hate it so much. Are you yeah. one of those people? Do you like the epilogue? Do you hate the epilogue? I don't know anymore. <laughs> yeah. I say this in all humility because I remember reading it the first time, and this is obviously like two decades ago, really not liking it. You know, we had traveled through seven years with these characters, and the intensity of the emotions in the last few chapters is so high that this throwaway, like it doesn't even get a chapter, right? It's just like six pages. And everything felt so tied in a bow and so easy and so neat that I was like, that is not how the real world works, you know? And it, it made me frustrated. I felt betrayed by this epilogue. I now read it and it's so ingrained within my understanding of what the arc is of these characters that I now expect it to be there. And I I find it very difficult to unbundle this set of images, right? This closing scene with what we know from the other chapters. So if I were to cut it out of my imaginative space now, I would feel like hanging on a hinge. Like those final words, all is well, are important to me now in understanding what the whole of the arc is for each of these characters. I'm actually excited to read it sacredly with you because I think there's more to be discovered in the way that we're going to read it than how I usually engage with it, which is just at that narrative level. How about you? So I like it because I don't think it's a happy ending. Ooh. All isn't well. Right. A war has been fought. People have died. And like, this looks exactly the same as things did 25 years ago. There are a lot of really like, petty moments. Slytherin is still a thing and Slytherin is still a thing with mixed associations with it. It hasn't been like mm -hmm. rebranded and reclaimed in any interesting way, obviously. Old pettiness like still exists. And I think that that is like very sad, but I think it's really mm. interesting and is representative of something that I find to be true in a lot of situations. You know, if this was a romance novel, I would want something <laughs> different from this epilogue. I would want. Yes. And there are no more houses and Draco and Harry hug hello. Right. Like all of these beautiful things. But it's not a romance novel. It is a yeah. series of adventure, fantasy, war books. And so this just like seems real to me. 
and the all is well doesn't bother me because like all's not well. And like, that's always going to be true. The thing that really struck me this time was less the houses and more the fact that boarding school exists. <laughs> I, I really yeah. felt it this time. I was so mad because we meet Albus, who's 11, right? His older brother, James, is already sounds like in, in going into his third year or something. This 11-year-old boy is leaving on a train. He's clearly worried and, and upset and sad. Harry is also feeling it. I'm, we don't hear about it, but I'm sure Ginny feels the same way. And the thing that really just made me angry, honestly, was that, you know, the, the kids are talking about how often they receive mail. And Harry and Ginny are like, well, write every day, we promise. And you can see immediately, Albus says that, oh, James told me that people get letters once a month. He's 11. He doesn't go home for three months at Christmas time. Like all of the stuff that we've talked about, especially about Tom Riddle, I was just like, why? Why are we putting these children in these structures of like institutional care rather than familial love? Like love is being cut off by this system in order to like control the lives of these children. I, I got really angry about it. And it had nothing to do with my own experience of boarding school. <laughs> you chose to go to boarding school. I know. And you were older, right? Well, I was I was 13. Oh, you were a baby. I was still very young. Yeah, I did years 13 and 14, and they were the worst years of my life. And I think maybe why I felt so much for Albus in this chapter is like, James seems like a cool kid. And if you're a cool kid, like if you're liked and you're in, in middle school... And, and certainly in like senior school, boarding school can be a wonderful experience because because you're on the inside of the relational system. I don't think Albus is going to be. I think Albus is going to be an outsider. And that's when it really hurts. And I just, yeah, I just felt for him so much. That's so interesting that you use that language of insider outsider, because I also felt that with the adults, like there are insiders and outsiders to this beautiful little clique. Yeah. The kids are immediately looking for the Granger Weasley kids, right? They're like, where are they? Where are they? They want to see their cousins. So like, clearly these are cousins that they see a lot. Yeah. But Bill and Fleur seem to have a daughter and like Harry and Ginny aren't like running up to their other niece. Harry's excited about the opportunity to ignore Percy, who is yes. there. And so there are these insider and outsider cliques that the adults are teaching the kids about through modeling. Yeah. Like, it's fine if you don't choose to go to the movies with certain nieces and nephews, but they're on the platform and you don't go and give them a hug. Hello. Like, I can't wrap my head around that possibility. Yeah. But I, I love that you're even like questioning not just the insider outsider, like James versus Albus thing, but the whole idea of sending kids away to Hogwarts. I agree. The line that killed me was, we'll see you at Christmas. I was like, holy heck. That's the pace at which I see my parents, right? Like I see my parents three times a year at least. And I am a grown up woman. <laughs> I mean, I, the picture that I will never forget from when I was a day student at my prep school. So this is with 11 year olds, even going as low as eight. What would happen on a Wednesday afternoon is that the parents would drive with sweets to the school and the kid would go and sit in the car with the parents and that was like parent kid time. And that's what I'm seeing here. It's just this like weird situation where they're writing once a month. They're not going to see each other for three months. I think it's breaking off or it's it's thinning 
the love that's already there or something. I, I don't know. I just, I find it challenging. I certainly think that like boarding school really suits some kids. And I mean like Harry, right? Like it was the best thing that ever happened to Harry. That's true. But the problem is that Hogwarts seems to be the only option <laughs> mm. for the wizarding community. And I agree with you. It, it's entirely possible that this is like not appropriate for Albus Mm. And yeah, there should at least be the option to like homeschool him for two more years. And like, maybe he only wants to go in grade three. Yeah. Or if we're having all of these wizarding families live near each other, have you heard of a local school <laughs> you know, like where maybe the teachers can have fulfilling lives of their own and not be oriented around the hijinks of nighttime escapades of the students, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I love that you're pointing us to that, that like, Structures make it easier or harder for us to be loving to people, right? I'm thinking about elder care in the United States where like you have to work, which means you can't take care of your parents, which means that you put them in an institution and like you can only visit them a certain amount of time. Like there's no good way that we do that here unless you're obscenely wealthy and so there are ways that systems can literally get in the way of us loving each other absolutely and i I love that because that choice is not about someone not loving their elderly relative enough their parent their aunt whatever it is it's about the economic system that does not see that first of all as worthy and and make provision for it and that pushes us to work so much that we we can't sustain relationships of love and care that demand time yeah Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Okay, 
so somewhere I want to take us to is Arthur Weasley. This like very lovely seeming joking thing comes up where Ron says, your grandfather would be livid if you married a purebled. And I think when I read that for the first time, I was like, that's so nice that they're like trying yeah. to like say that pure blood status is dumb and whatever. And now I'm like, that is exoticizing muggleborns. Like absolutely saying you don't have to marry another white person. You don't have to marry another Jewish person. We don't care if you don't marry a pure blood is different than like go out and seek it. And it's just to me is like spoke to like the pernicious side of love. That love mm. distilled too much can become about actually reducing someone to less than what mm. they are. Like, what if the grandkids really fall in love with the pure blood? That's not their fault. It's just fetishizing and it made me uncomfortable. That's so interesting because I absolutely read it in that kind of simple way that you said you had as well previously, where it's this like sign of solidarity and like breaking with tradition. There was something in it though, which also spoke to me a little bit about the trauma for Arthur of Fred's death, that for him, this has become a line in the sand. Like the whole even idea of knowing what your blood status is, kind of like a caste system where one of the first questions you try and figure out is like, well, where do you fit within the caste system? He, he's both trying to reject it. And of course, also, as you said, like falling into it by being like, don't choose a pure blood. Right. You have to ask someone their blood status in order to find out they're a pure blood. Absolutely. But I, I guess I'm feeling such empathy for him because he both doesn't want that tradition. And at the same time, he's like, but don't marry one of those families. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, but what it reminded me of was the way in which my grandparents would pay my mom to fail her German classes as a young student, because the language of German, just for their experience of living through the Second World War, was traumatic. And anything they could do to like be against it was rewarded. Like she, she literally got money if she got low scores in German class. And, and this is the bit that's really relevant, that they wouldn't allow her to play with certain children right. because their parents had been collaborators. And I don't blame them. I do not blame no. them for that for a single minute. And so I can't blame Arthur here for that same reaction because he's like, I don't want you to associate with these people because they murdered our son. You know what I mean? Yes, I absolutely do not judge your grandparents I think that I have a harder time swallowing that about Arthur because he fetishized muggles for so long prior to the war. Mm. He's just a fetishist. It's it's, it's one or the other. <laughs> it's not one or the other. It's a combination of factors. But yeah. I, I love your like trauma reading. I mean, like I was raised the same way. I like we did not have any German products in our house. And like my parents really judged other Jews who like own German cars or like a Krups coffee maker. Right. And I understand that, right? Like we should all be boycotting things that traumatize us. We should not have things that trigger our trauma in our homes, right? But mm. this is like passing it on to a third generation. This is not the grandchildren's trauma. This is Arthur's trauma. Yeah. Well, and that's that generational piece is so important because I remember when I went to live in Germany for a year, which I loved it felt like an ending of that story in a way. It felt like that there was some sense of generational healing that happened, even in that small decision to go on an exchange to Germany for a year. You right. know? 
So I love that reading that there's, yeah, that there's an opportunity as new generations come for that story to change. Right. And that's on Ron, right? Like Ron is the one perpetuating this story. And like, maybe it's Ron being tongue in cheek of being like, how ridiculous is my like super conservative father that he's still thinking like this? (laughs) Don't do that. But I at minimum think it's complicated. Yeah. I now have a beautiful moment to turn our eyes to. Yes. Fabian Pruitt's watch. Yes, the battered watch that was given to him by Molly. Right, like Harry looks at his watch and it's Fabian Pruitt's watch, which is the watch that Molly gave Harry as tradition on Harry's 17th birthday. And it was her brother's. And Mm. it's just like a very like chosen family inheritance thing. And also Molly said on Harry's 17th birthday, I'm sorry, it's not new. And we don't know what Harry is doing now, but I'm guessing he could afford a new watch. But he's like not wearing a new watch. He's like wearing Fabian Pruitt's watch. And I just I think gift giving is often disparaged as a love language. But like this is just to me like such a beautiful example of how powerful gift giving can be as a love language. All of this conversation about kind of intergenerational connection and like objects, like all of these things that build those links of love is reminding me about a study that came out, I think maybe a couple of years ago, which described the act of storytelling about one's own family lineage as a way that would help children navigate challenge. Like literally hearing stories of a parent describe how they overcame a challenge or a difficulty in their life, or a grandparent, or even like an ancient ancestor, is a literal resource that young people can take and say, well, I know that my mother did it, or that my uncle, or that my great-grandmother I can do it too. And so, you know, we we talk about these things as symbolic, but there's so much more than that. Like they are actual love power points (laughs) that that, that helps. And I think it, it points again to the importance of Harry discovering more about his parents in that photo album from Hagrid, in the mirror of Erised, in that final walk into the forest. Like we have seen how that works in the text. And we know that it's true in terms of scientific research as well. And again, it like doesn't have to be biological family, right? I think that Mm. as a straight woman, let me tell you about the gay community now, Casper. But like, right, like there's this legacy of like older gay men bringing younger gay men like into the fold and explaining to them, this is what we had to go through. And we're proud to have made a better world for you in these ways, right? Like this is absolutely replicated in chosen families too. It's not just in biological ones. Can I now do my best Casper impression? Are we doing Hagrid voices? I don't know where this is going. Him. So I would like to point to where the word of the theme <gasps> comes up in the chapter. Oh my God, I can't believe you get to do this. Yes, take us there. I'm not doing it. I'm being you. I'm doing method acting. <laughs> where does it show up in the chapter? Jenny says to James, send Neville our love. And James is like, I can't send Neville your love, mom. And she's like, why? You know, Neville. And he's like, because he's Professor Longbottom at school. I can't send love. (laughs) And first of all, it's like very cute because you get this image of like Neville and the Weasley Potter family, like all being friends and the kids like knowing and loving Uncle Neville. But also it's like this really interesting and incisive observation about the way that young boys for the most part but children in general absorb the idea that like love 
in certain mm. situations is like sissy. Like you can't be loving to certain people in front of other people. Like love is something that has to be private. I don't think like sometimes that's about like, I don't want to reveal like some sort of nepotism. Like I don't want people to know that I'm close to this teacher in case I get treated in a favoritism way. But that's not what this is about for James. James is like, it's embarrassing that I love Neville in front of my classmates. I mean, it's certainly gendered. I think there's also even a little element of like the complications of love and authority here because Neville's also a teacher and it's a kind of going upwards in the generation, right? So there's there's kind of strange elements. Of course, James is not actually giving his own love. He's giving his parents love. So I think I ultimately land where you are, which is like, it's more about the expressing of love in public than it is about James loving Neville in, in this kind of relational way in the classroom. Vanessa, let's talk about one more little moment in this chapter, which is the kind of interaction between Draco, Harry, and Ron. You mean the non-interaction? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very clear that they're both avoiding each other. And I want to give this a really positive reading after really enjoying recently Judith Butler's book about nonviolence. And she writes this sentence that really captivated my imagination for how relationships can be, especially ones that are so deeply troubled, right? Like this one. And she writes, we do not have to love one another to be obligated to build a world in which all lives are sustainable. And I I found that a helpful counterpoint to the usual kind of narrative that we put together around love, which is that like, oh, we should all love one another. And if we loved one another, everything would be better. And Butler is saying like, no, you don't have to have that kind of love in order to have basic dignity and respect for all lives to be Uh, worthy of living and considered worthy. And so that I actually read it more generously this time and saw that interaction as being like, you know what? They're not shouting at each other. They're not causing a scene. Hopefully they're not influencing their children too much. I think they're falling short there. But nonetheless, like they have some level of okayness, which allows this moment of sending their children to school to not be front page news. I absolutely agree with you that this moment should be read generously, and I love the insight you're bringing. Also, I think it's quite remarkable that Draco is sending his kid here. Yeah. Like, Draco absolutely could send his kid to Durmstrang or any number of things. This is a site of some shame for Draco, I would imagine. And instead, he is sending his child there and, I don't know, sort of like respectfully keeping his distance from Harry Yeah, I think that it lends the possibility for us to read this as like Draco has done some real atoning and some real integration of the way that he behaved before and the fact that he wants to be better in the future. Yeah, I love that. Casper, for for this episode, we're moving on to the spiritual practice of Florilegia, where you and I each pick a sentence or a part of a sentence that speaks to us and put them in conversation with each other. Which sentence did you pick? I had to. I chose all was well. I appreciate that you picked that. (laughs) How about you? I picked two large cages rattled on top. Oh, yes. I think I know where you're going. Why did it sparkle for you? Oh, I I don't know where I'm going. So I'm glad you did. 
I mean, this was like the most endearing moment of the tableau to me. This like harkens back to the first time Harry was trying to go through platform nine and three quarters. In this moment, in the epilogue, Ginny and Harry are pushing the carts for their children. There's like real parental care of the kids, which Harry obviously didn't have. There's Mm. this callback to Hedwig of these two owls. And then, you know, like, obviously, also, it's cages. I, like, find it very confusing that they don't let the owls fly to Hogwarts. These are, like, magical owls. You could just say, meet me at Hogwarts, and they could fly there. Like, why do they have to be in cages? But That's such a good point. I've never thought about that. <laughs> and so, to me, this, like, speaks to the whole chapter. It's like there's an improvement. Yeah. Like, the parents are loving the kids, which wasn't true 26, 27 years ago. But, like, owls are still in cages when they absolutely don't have to be. And so it just, like, encapsulated how I feel about this whole chapter. And that that seems true to me. Like, we don't radically think about the ways that we can change things. So, of course, the owls are just still in cages. Mm. So that's why it sparkled at me. What about you? What about why did all as well sparkle at you? I am so taken by this idea that all narrative is tragedy and comedy. It just depends where you start and end the story. It's so Shakespearean, right? Like if you start with a happy scene and you end at the sadness, then it's a tragedy. And if you start with the sad scene, but come to something that's happier, it's a comedy. Bringing that lens to this set of three words was so helpful for me because I really want to claim that there are moments when all is well. It's not forever. It's not permanent. But there are these moments when I feel a cosmic okayness or a feeling of peace and calm or a feeling of comfort and love. And five minutes later, you know, I'm realizing the toast is burning or like I'm just really sad because freaking COVID is still happening. Yeah, I just I think it's it's incomplete, but it's also not untrue Mm -hmm. to have those final Mm -hmm. words. I think it's both true and not true. So but isn't that the best about all things? Honestly, I will go and rewatch Stephanie Purcell talk about this. Like she has this beautiful image of in Virginia Woolf's writing, a constant things breaking into fragments and then a collection of those fragments into a whole. And the whole is different every day. Stephanie talks about the fact that Virginia would date each of her autobiographical reflections because the whole that you construct on one day out of the fragments of life is different from the whole you would make on another day. And so it's constantly this paradox of wholeness and brokenness. And that really stuck with me reading this this final epilogue. Well, let's put these two sentences together now. So I'll read them in one order and then we'll swap. So all was well, two large cages rattled on top. It feels kind of grotesque. Totally. It's like, all's great. These two large cages are still rattling. That's what we like. It's like what a prison warden would say. You know, the word cages, reading it now in 2021, just is immediately tied to children in cages, right? Like the Trump administration's actions of detaining and separating families at the border. It feels insulting. I feel offended <laughs> putting these words together in this way. It's weird to have that thing. And, and I guess to make meaning of it, it feels like an invitation whenever I'm feeling that all is well moment to be like, yeah, but for a lot of people, it's not. This is not a universal feeling. Not not just that it's not going to last forever for me, but it's also not equally distributed. And so all is well is always incomplete because there are cages that are rattling Yeah, there's a tradition at the end of Jewish weddings where you stomp on a glass, you break a glass, you break something that's whole into fragments. 
to use Stephanie's language. And there are a lot of different rabbinical scholarly readings to why this happens. But one that I think is most frequently used is that we do this to remind ourselves that even on days of like perfect joy, where like everyone you love is in the room, the mm. world is still broken. Certain people we love cannot be here. They've passed away, right? That there's still pain in the world. And it's upon that reminder when you break the class that everybody says mazel tov. Hmm. So like it's this last moment of like, let's just remember even on days like today, the world is broken. Hmm. What strikes me is the word rattled because it means that whatever's inside the cages are fighting to get out. So it's like, even when all is well and the cages are locked up, things are fighting to change. Things are fighting to get out. It's like a depressing situation, but some optimism in the rattled to me. Mm, I like that. Okay, let's flip the sentences. So now two large cages rattled on top, all was well. Two large cages rattled on top, all was well. My image now is very different. I'm seeing like a moving van or like some sort of maybe wagon, which is piled up with boxes and, and things. And on top are these two cages and they're empty, but they're rattling because the wagon is moving. And so the image is very different because it doesn't have this sense of imprisonment or containment of people who want to be free, but it's more a sense of like something driving off into the sunset or like all is well, like this chapter is closing or like there's a sense of completion and also optimism about a new start somewhere that I'm seeing in the words now that that feels appropriate for, for where we are in terms of reading the books. Is there something new that you're seeing? Yeah, I'm trying to think two large cages rattled on top. All was well. So it sounds like the cages or like whatever is in the cages were saying all was well. And so it reminds me of the moments in which the people who we think of as the victims are taking care of the well people. Like you often see this when someone is ill or dying, like someone has cancer, but the person they're leaving behind is really upset. So the cancer patient will be taking care of their family who they're leaving behind saying like, you'll be fine. I feel fine. The two cages are rattling on top saying all was well. And yeah, just how complicated that is. I'm not sure if that's beautiful or if we mm. should reject it and be like, no, you don't have to take care of me right now. Mm. Or like Hermione does with the house elves being like, no, you're not fine. You're not happy. You're in a cage. You just don't see it. We're all in cages that we don't see, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that Florilegia. That was intense. Yeah. I wonder if we should do Florilegio with the first sentence and the last sentence when we do the whole seven book review. Ooh. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our voicemail this week is from Anya. Hi, Vanessa and Casper and Ariana and everyone else in the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I'm just listening to your episode on reunion and I just wanted to um, say how much I'm going to miss Casper. Um, I hope you will get to hear this message, Casper, because uh, especially for this past few weeks, I've been appreciating your insights so much. And honestly, I personally struggle sometimes with being so agreeable in conversations and and being able to kind of see the other person perspective and and really be curious about it even with, when I don't agree I I do get quite argumentative and I just appreciate how gentle you are and how you are always able to see it to kind of find like a common ground with with Vanessa um, and you you see everything from so many different angles it just really this today's episode really made me um made me miss you so much already even though you're not gone yet so I just want to say that I appreciate this few years with you and Vanessa so much and I'm gonna miss you so much and your insights and please stay the the incredible gentleman that you are and um, I I really learned a lot from you and I'm hoping to to continue developing um, this incredible quality that you have of, yeah, being so agreeable and gentle and being able to see everything from so many perspectives. So thank you very much and um, all the best, a, a lot of blessings for both of you. Anya, thank you very, very much. That is 
very generous and very sweet. And I fear not entirely true because <laughs> I'm definitely not generous and listening all the time in my life, but I really appreciate it. And I, I'm so grateful to everyone who sent such lovely messages, knowing that we're coming to the end. We've still got like a month of me chatting, so no worries. But I, I, I will miss all of you as well. And the first thing I said when we talked about having Matt come on the show to read book one with Vanessa, I was like, can can I be a guest? <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, we didn't kick you out. <laughs> no, no, and it was you know I should own that. Like it was it was my decision. We we'd said together, let's. You know, we started by just committing to book one and then just to book two. And then after a while, we, we were clear this was a lot of fun. So we said, let's do all seven books. But I do believe that for everything, there is a season. And I'm really excited about the fact that I have completed the journey. I think it's important sometimes to say, yeah, there's beauty in, in a closing of a chapter as well as a continuation of things, right? Like they both have their own charm and their own losses. But I will say, if you want to hear us talk more about texts that we love, please join us in our new podcast. We've just launched the first episode in the feed of The Real Question, which you can find everywhere where you listen to your podcasts. And, you know, Vanessa and I are still having as much fun and Ariana is still cutting out the bits that don't work. So we sound good. So please, please come and join us there, Anya, and just know how grateful I am for this very generous message. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's really sweet how much people are expressing how much they'll miss you. And when people ask me, aren't you going to miss Casper? I'm like, well, I'm still going to talk to him every day and we're still going to record Fridays from nine to 11. So no, <laughs> I'm just so glad we're doing the real question because otherwise this would be a yeah. horrible, horrible transition for me. And so I hope people like the real question, but also like, thank God for it. I mean, that's why we started the new podcast, because we were both right. like, um, <laughs> this shouldn't end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As we come towards the end of this episode, we want to honor loved ones of people in our community who've passed away from COVID. And as ever, I invite you to hold these, these names in your heart. Mamu Ugta. Lessie Easley was 91 and a fiercely committed lover of God. Liz Vertigan was 92 and herself until the very end. Joe Moore, a teacher and philosopher. Tina Valois, who was 55, a grandmother, mother, wife, and a lovely person. And Lawrence Gladue who was 75, a grandfather, educator, and river walker. May their memories be a blessing. So Casper, it's now time where we get to offer a blessing. The last one sort of in the pages of the book. Will you go first? Oh, yes, sure. I want to bless baby Lily Potter. Hmm. I want to bless her because she's being left behind, which I think is a really terrible feeling. I also want to say you get undivided attention from your parents for the next few months, <laughs> which like as one of three and the only girl, anytime I got my parents undivided attention, I was like, what? It's all about me. It like was amazing. So like Lily, enjoy that. But I just want to say it's like, you know, I'm being left behind by Casper. And so I feel you, girl. 
it's going to be great for me. It's going to be great for you. But like there is something sad about being left behind. Mm-hmm. What about you, Casper? Who do you want to bless? Well, I feel like I want to and I need to bless Harry in this final epilogue. I want to bless him for so many reasons. You know, he has survived. He has built this family. His love with Ginny has endured. There is so much that's beautiful and powerful about the life that he has lived into. But the thing that really struck me was as we look hopefully towards at least a decline of COVID, if not a a sort of zero COVID world, and we have moved from this language of, oh, we're going to return to normal, the world that was before, and instead talk about a new normal or the next normal. I think Harry's showing me how to do that. It doesn't undo all the loss. It doesn't undo the suffering and the sadness. And yet here he is as a loving dad, doing the best he can as a husband, as a friend. I, I just bless him for keeping going one day at a time after the horrors and the sadnesses of his life. I hope he can be an inspiration to me and to all of us. So my blessings for Harry. Amen. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. You can join our local groups and come join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. You can leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail and check out our new podcast, The Real Question. Wherever you are listening to my beautiful voice right now, you can find our other podcast. (laughs) Next week, we're doing a whole book recap of book seven. We're a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll and we're distributed by Acast. Thanks to Anya for this week's voicemail. To Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, the wonderful Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Stephanie Purcell, and everyone who's sent in the names of their loved ones who've passed away. But I also want to say, Vanessa, a big thanks to you, because, well, we'll do more of that later. But I just love you. We have seen how that works in the text, and we know that it's true in terms of scientific research as well. Yeah, which is why I lie to the kids and tell them, your great-great-grandfather, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> believed in emancipation. And you <laughs> can too. I just, why not? Why not? I mean, we, we, but we, that's, I mean, in all seriousness, like every family story always gets polished and <laughs> no longer was it, you know, the second biggest cinema in Cincinnati became the biggest cinema. And then the next generation becomes the biggest cinema in the whole of Ohio, right? Like these stories do mutate and grow and become a little more shiny than maybe the truth. Yeah, I totally am <laughs> descendant from Abraham Lincoln. <laughs>